do, if you guys wouldn't mind, open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Uh, we are actually done today with the book of Galatians. And uh, today's the final day. We've been through a series uh, in the book of Galatians. This is about the 34th message that we've been taking a look at it. And uh, so today kind of wraps up everything up until this point. And uh, I'm excited about it. Hopefully the book of Galatians was encouraging to you. Uh, I know it was really encouraging to me. I feel like God's opened my eyes in a lot of ways to the gospel in ways that I've never really thought. Uh, I'd never even really known before. I'm very thankful to God for that. Hopefully the same has been true for you guys as well. And uh, so what we're going to do right now is I want to read the passage of scripture that we're going to be taking a look at. Then I'll pray and then we'll get to work this morning and uh, see where God takes us here today. So Galatians chapter 6, I want to pick it up at around verse 11. We'll read down to the end of the chapter and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. It says this. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they might boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble, cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. God, we ask you right now that you would just speak to our hearts. We thank you that your word is alive, it's living, it's powerful, can be trusted. And so, Lord, I ask you right now that you would just help us just to focus our attention upon the beauty of what the gospel is all about. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to communicate clearly. Uh, Lord, also, I pray that you'd restrain my tongue from saying things that just ought not to. As I'm fallen, I'm sinful, my heart's dirty. But God, I thank you for grace that covers that, that washes me from that and allows me to be able to speak clearly. Lord, I just pray for boldness. I pray for uh, clarity, and I pray that you just be glorified in our hearts and our lives, and ultimately in response, that God, we would find great joy in seeking you and knowing you and loving you, and that we would enter into that eternal life that Jesus, you spoke so much about. So we just commit this time in your hands, and uh, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we come to the end of the book of Galatians, and uh, basically in short, the book of Galatians has been written to a group of people that first came to Jesus, they came to know and understand God's grace, God's love, God's um, unconditional acceptance of them for who they are, irregardless of how sinful they were or how uh, poorly they had lived following God even prior to that, or how theologically inaccurate or incorrect they were, and yet God accepted them. That's the beauty of what we call the gospel, that God accepts us. It's not on the basis of what we do for God, it's on the basis of what God has already done. That's the beauty. And the, the whole point of Galatians is Paul has been basically pegging uh, gospel, what God has done for us, against religion or defiled religion or our attempts to somehow make ourselves right with God. And that's what the whole message to this group of people in this region called Galatia was all about. But in a very real way, the same type of controversies and the same type of difficulties we find even in our own days, you know, 2,000 years later. We still wrestle with these very things. Uh, most of us, we find ourselves even today wondering, God, do you love me? 
God, you care for me. God, what do I got to do to get you to, to, to recognize me, to care for me, to, um, to show affection to me? And really, what we oftentimes do in our efforts of trying to get God to like us, we find ourselves looking and emulating basically what the Galatian people did. Rather than trusting God for what God has done for us and what God has declared over us, what God said to us, we basically distrust God and say, well, that's not enough. I need more. I need to read my Bible more in order for God to love me. I need to pray more in order for God to love me. I need to go to church more in order for God to love me. I need to give more money away in order for God to love me. I need to sing louder. I need to sing more you know, exuberantly, raising my hands. Or I need to do all these other types of things somehow in order to get God to recognize me, to acknowledge me. What Paul's trying to say throughout this entire letter is that God does accept you. God does love you. God does recognize you. Not on the basis of all of these other things that you do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. It's the beauty of the whole message. But we always forget that, don't we? We always forget that. And what we do is we end up going back to our default mode. And the default mode of our life is what Paul's going to identify as the flesh. The default mode of our life is rooted in insecurities. It's rooted in fear. It's rooted in self-made religion. All of us, by nature, are religious. Whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, whether you believe in God, whether you disbelieve in God, whether you're a theist, deist, or atheist, we all are religious by nature. We all have various forms of religion, ways in which we try to make things right. The word for making things right that Paul's going to adopt and use is this idea of justify. We're all looking for a way and a means by which we can justify our lives, justify our existence, justify who we are, justify what we do. And what Paul's going to say over and over and over again is that the way you and I are justified is not by pointing to things that we do, but by pointing to what Jesus has done, by just simply believing that, trusting that. That's the whole crux of the whole argument throughout the book of Galatians. So what Paul's going to do is he finishes this whole little section here about verse 11. Paul's going to say this. Again, he goes back and he says, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Um, kind of raise a lot of questions. Sometimes people wonder, like, did Paul not write this letter? What's Paul talking about? He says, you know, I wrote this with, you know, big letters. A lot of people have wondered what that meant. I'm not going to go into all the speculations about this. But by and large, it probably means this, that Paul when he wrote the letters, it wasn't necessarily him with a pen in hand and writing the things down himself. It was Paul probably sitting on a couch, uh, communicating or giving dictation to somebody else and another person, which is typically called an amanuensis. He would have kind of written all this stuff down. So that was very typical back in that first century era, and that's probably what was going on. But in the final closing sentence, or pericope is the whole idea, pericope is the whole idea of Paul coming in and saying, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get off the couch for this one. I'm going to grab the pen on this one. I'm going to finish up this entire letter with my own writing. That's what Paul's trying to say, is that everything I've set up in this point has been important. It's been what I've dictated, but this final paragraph this is me writing with my own hands, my own signature. This is what I have to say. And Paul's basically communicating that in summary, the most important thing of everything is what it's about to say right now. In reality, he basically summarizes in bullet point fashion everything he's already gone over and over again from chapter 1 all the way down to the second part of chapter 6. All right. So here's what Paul's saying. And in summary, 
I'm going to write all of this with my own hands. This is how important and how significant it is. And then he basically moves from there and begins to just focus on nothing more than the cross and what it means to basically boast in the cross. So before we begin to kind of take a look at the two specific things that I think Paul is trying to uh, contrast with each other, is everything centers around the cross. And he's going to contrast it this way. With those who boast in the cross, that's what Paul's going to say in a second, he's going to say, I boast in the cross, and those who boast in the flesh. So in short, Paul's going to use language that if you're a Christian, you might be familiar with, and Christians got to be careful, because even though you know, we, we might have our own type of uh, lingo or vocabulary, Christianese, it's good to define these things, because sometimes people might come in here like, what in the world is flesh? What does it mean to boast in the cross? What is this stuff talking about? And so I want to try to take a second and just kind of unpack this for you real quickly. So when Paul's going to say, uh, in terms of his contrast here between flesh, those who boast in the flesh, and cross, and those who boast in the cross, and that's basically the rest of the book. That's it. So first of all, what does it mean to boast in the cross, or what is the cross? Well, first of all, the word boast that he's going to use typically is the idea of, of exalting in, um, getting pumped up about, excited about, uh, speaking of, bragging about. That's kind of what Paul's doing. He's like, look, I want to brag a little bit, but I'm not going to brag the way the other people are bragging because the other people are bragging about what they've done. They're bragging about their accomplishments. They're bragging about how many people they've led to circumcision. They're bragging about, you know, if we jump into the modern era, people are bragging about how many people came forward at an altar call. People are bragging about how many people they led to pray the sinner's prayer. People are bragging about... You know, whatever. I mean, we brag about everything. And what Paul's going to say is that, look, I'm going to brag, but I'm not going to brag about stuff that is just simply transient, uh, fleshly, and has an expiration date on it. I'm going to brag about something that's eternal and lasting and profound. I'm going to brag about the cross. So what does that mean? Well, the cross is a phrase that Paul uses a lot. He uses a lot throughout all of his writings. And what you need to understand is that Paul uses various phrases and these phrases basically encompass a lot. I like to look at it this way. It's kind of like a suitcase. When you guys go out on a journey, you bring a suitcase. Nobody throws their entire closet, unless you're a woman, into a <laughs> bunch of bags and go out somewhere. All right? All your shoes. You got like 55 pairs of shoes. No one does that. They take their best shoes. They take their best clothing. They take their best shirts or whatever. And they go on their journey. They throw it into their suitcase. And their suitcase is basically kind of a collection of the best of the best. That's what Paul's going to do. Paul has these phrases that are like these suitcase phrases. Well, the cross is a suitcase phrase, all right? The gospel, it's a suitcase phrase. And basically the cross, when Paul says, I'm going to boast on the cross, I'm going to brag about the cross, what Paul means by that is it means Jesus came into the world and died on a cross. He took, his, he took our sin upon himself, died in our place for our sin, rose again from the dead, so it involves Christ's um, incarnation, him coming into the world, it involves Christ's um, crucifixion, suffering, it involves Christ's resurrection, it involves Christ's ascension, meaning that after he rose again from the dead, came back to life, he lived for about you know, 50 days or so on the planet, and then he ascended up into heaven, it involves Christ's ascension, it involves all of these things, it involves new life, it involves Christ's second coming again. Uh, involves all of these things. And what Paul's going to say in sort of a, kind of a, like I said, a suitcase type of a word or just a simple phrase or a thumbnail, he's going to say, look, I'm going to boast, I'm going to brag about the cross. Because the cross is God doing all of these things independent of me, however, on my behalf, for me. It's God's gift to me. 
free of charge. So when Paul's going to talk about the cross, he has all of these ideas in mind. You might find similar terms uh, throughout the New Testament. Paul might talk about the gospel. When Paul talks about the gospel, he's kind of thinking the same way. One of the reasons why it just makes a lot of sense, because if you're going to be writing a lot of letters like Paul did, you're not going to want to spell it out every single time you come to that. I'm going to talk to you guys about Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, uh, resurrection, ascension, future coming again in glory, and the restoration of all things. That makes for a very wordy sentence, and most of the time Paul doesn't really care about wording sentences because most of his sentences are very wordy, and they just run on and on and on. Uh, Greek scholars typically talk about the bad grammar of Paul because Paul just has these run-on sentences, but Paul would have even more run-on sentences if he just did not somehow figure out a phrase or a term that he can just collapse down and say, when I'm talking to you about all that Christ did, I'm going to just call it the cross. That's what he's doing. So he's, I'm going to brag about the cross. Second thing he's going to talk about is the flesh. So he's going to say there are those who boast in the cross. Paul's going to say, I'm going to brag on that. And there are those who are going to boast in the flesh. What he means by that is basically uh, the world system. This world in which we live in has sort of a default zone, a default mode, whereby we operate. And all of us, by nature, meaning we are birthed by nature into this fleshly world system. We have a way or default mode by which we operate, by which we think, by which we deal with God. And that default mode is typically this, all right? It goes something like this. And you'll see kind of traces of this throughout all forms of paganism throughout the entire world, from ancient Egypt to the Mayans to, you know, people all the way down deep in the jungle. It's the same idea. It basically goes like this. I know I'm a sinner. I know there's something I've done that's wrong. I don't work very well in society. I've got issues. However, um, because of this, I have this overwhelming sense of guilt. And God, whoever he is, whoever she is, or God's, whatever type of pantheon there is out there, is probably upset with me, and I'm interfering with the vibes of the universe. So somehow I need to figure out a way to make myself right or back in rhythm with the vibe of the universe, God, he, she, it, whatever it may be, I've got to figure out some way to get myself back in the rhythm of the universe by way of, you know, offering a sacrifice to my virgin firstborn daughter, or somehow taking a goat from my backyard and slaying that, or offering some sort of something. You get the idea? It's one of the reasons why almost every form of pagan type of religion um, in very disconnected type countries or situations are almost always the exact same. All the time. I mean, they might vary in the names of the gods. And typically the gods that are formed are like the god of the air, the god of thunder and lightning, the god who gives, you know, rain, or the god who of sunlight. And we pray to those things because everybody recognizes, doesn't matter who you are, some level of transcendence beyond us. And we want to tap into that. But we also recognize that even though something exists outside of us, beyond us, we know by nature, by default mode, we are out of sync with that. Does that make sense? There's not a symmetry going on there. There's not a rhythm going on there. Somehow we've broken rhythm. We've gone out of step with that. So therefore we try as best as we can to get back into rhythm which, with that which is transcendent beyond us. It's a default mode of heart. The Bible's going to say that that is the flesh. And you see various forms of that, even within cults and types of religions. I would even say we see those types of forms even within Christian circles. It's the idea. That's exactly what Paul was identifying in Galatia. Why were the Galatians going back into this form of type kind of paganism? Because the default mode of our heart 
is to do that. That's resident in your life today. If you're like, God's angry with me. I don't know why he's angry with me. That's why I caught this cold. Maybe that's why I have mono. That's why I'm sick. Maybe that's why my mom got cancer. Maybe that's you know, why something bad happened to me. Or I didn't get the job that I thought I was going to get. Maybe God's ticked off at me and I got to figure out some way to appease him and make him happy and I'll pray more I'll make deals with God I'll say God if you just you know give me this job if you help my daughter get healed if you help my mom get well I promise you God I'll give you my life so we start making deals with God that's paganism okay God says you can't do any you don't have anything to offer me that I need See, in order for a bargain to work, in order for you to make deals with somebody, you've got to have something that other party needs or wants or is already lacking. So you go to God, you're like, God, I'll give you my life. God's like, really? That's going to add something to me? That's going to be a blessing or a benefit to me? You can't even live with yourself. You can't even manage your own self. What good is it going to add to me? Okay, here's what Paul's saying. Apart from the gospel, we're left to try to bargain with God, make deals with God, and figure out any type of way that we can to somehow get God to like us. And the gospel says, God not only does not not like you, he actually loves you. That's what Jesus did. That's what he accomplished for us on the cross. Religion basically says, do, and God will like. The gospel says, done. God loves God loves you. You can stop. You can stop trying so hard and deliberately trying to get God to recognize you and love you and like you because God has already through the cross accomplished everything for you. And what's left for you is to just simply trust and believe that and move into the joy that comes with that. That humbles you, by the way, too. That overwhelms you with the sense of love that I'm loved by God and I have nothing to offer, yet God loves me nonetheless. God says, you have nothing to offer me, but I have everything to offer you. Man, that's amazing. That's what the gospel is all about. So what I want to do right now is I want to kind of basically go on the line of what Paul's talking about here and trying to bring about sort of this contrast. We're going to basically look at two things, and the contrast is between the boasting of the flesh and the other contrast is that of the boasting of the cross that we just looked at. So first of all, let's talk about boasting of the flesh. And we just read the scriptures. I'm going to go back and kind of read through them bit by bit. But those people that Paul's referring to, that these guys are boasting in the flesh, boasting in the natural realm, because these guys were basically going around promoting circumcision, saying that if you really want to be made right with God, if you really want to be part of uh, you know, God's inner circle, God's special chosen people, or the Israel of God, and I'll tell you why I think these guys were probably going around, their argument probably went something like this, saying that, look, God's chosen people are Israel. If you want to be accepted by God, what you need to become is part of Israel. You need to be part of the actual Israel of God. And so obviously, naturally, that raises the question amongst Gentile believers who are uncircumcised. They're not part of Israel. They're not part of the customs of Moses or Abraham, of the lineage of Abraham. The question that naturally comes in their mind is, how do we become part of the Israel of God? 
And so the false teachers come back and say, well, the way that you'll be accepted by God is by becoming a part of the Israel of God. And the way you become part of the Israel of God is, see, here's the scriptures. You must be circumcised. And once you're circumcised, you must live according to the law of Moses. So what you had in the region of Galatia was a bunch of people that were getting circumcised because in their mind, desperately, eagerly, they want to be made right with God. And again, Paul's whole argument throughout this whole thing is, is that you you can't, you cannot add upon or improve upon what Jesus has already done. He's already made you right with God. That's what his sacrifice on the cross accomplished. You can't add to that. So what Paul's saying is that these guys are going around boasting of that. But here's the problem. What boasting in the flesh does is it causes a lot of problems. But boasting in the flesh, exalting in the flesh, rejoicing in the flesh, or our actions in this world actually are motivated by at least three different things. There's probably more, but in the text here, we'll take a look at three things. First of all, boasting in the flesh is motivated by pride. Verse 12, he says this, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh would force you to become circumcised. So first of all, he identifies that this group of people, they really want you to be circumcised because what's happening is behind closed doors, these guys are getting together and they're basically comparing notes. They're like, look, I can't believe this. I just got 25 dudes circumcised. Now the guy's just like, are you kidding? I just got 35 dudes circumcised. They're like, this is amazing. Let's compare notes. Let's boast about this. And this is what Paul's saying, is that behind closed doors, these guys are actually arrogant and prideful. They're not really looking out for the actual growth and development of your soul. These guys, really, at the end of the day, they just care about being affirmed by each other. That's what they want. But think about that. I mean, how many of you guys have maybe either been to a church or been a part of a group or have known people that have been part of a group that really, at the end of the day, the leaders or the people that are teaching or guiding really don't care that much about your soul or maybe feel that way, but at the end of the day, what they really care about is how diligent you are in sharing the gospel with other people, how much you go to prayer meetings, how many people are in your small group, how many people you invite to church, how much money you're giving. It's all they really care about. They're not really super caring about how close you are with Jesus, how much you're walking with Christ. Really, at the end of the day, they just care about numbers, growth, and the development of the overall superficial external growth of the church because at the end of the day, these guys go around boasting about that. I'm going to tell you a little dirty, dark secret of pastors. All right? I'll air my dirty laundry. And the point of the matter is that sometimes pastors, leaders of churches, really can just care about numbers. They care about how big a church is. They care about how much money comes in. They care about building, increasing, growing, because at the end of the day, they know that their reputation is attached to the numeric growth of a church. All right, that's the dirty, dark secret. The more the church grows, the more people are praying, the more people are going to small groups, the more people that are in small groups, the more things are happening, the more that the pastor, the more that the leadership of the church can boast, flex your muscles, spiritual muscle, and somehow look really good and be affirmed by a lot of other people. Does it mean that every pastor is somehow flawed like that? Not necessarily, no. But the point of the matter is, it is a very real issue that oftentimes is a part of churches. So Paul's saying is that, look, this is what was going on in Galatia during that time, and these people don't really care about the actual spiritual growth of your soul and your migration towards Jesus. At the end of the day, they really care about themselves, and they're very prideful. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. Next slide, I'll say this. 
The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he goes on to say, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity with God. At the end of the day, what pride is all about is it's basically my attempts, my efforts to somehow save myself, my efforts, my attempts to somehow make myself look right before God. And if I'm leading a group of people, if you're leading a group of people and you're not leading them to Jesus, it's fueled by pride. It's motivated by pride. It's about somehow getting affirmation. It's about somehow getting credit. It's about somehow getting people to recognize you, to identify you, to affirm you. At the end of the day, it's because somehow identity has not been found in Jesus. It's been found in what we do for Jesus. It's one of the reasons why I think ministry is an idol that can very easily creep in and take over people's lives because it becomes a means to leverage popularity from other people in order to boast up, lift up, boost up oneself. That's what Paul's saying that was going on, on here. Really one of the best ways to identify this is that when salvation, when salvation originates from my glorying and my efforts, in other words, when I look at me and say the way that I'm saved and the way that you guys get saved is by loving Jesus and you know, being deeply committed to the prayer groups of our church. When we say that that's the way that true Christians really get it on in this world and start walking straight with God, then what's going to happen inevitably, inevitably is there are going to be those that aren't able to show up at prayer meetings or aren't able to go out and lead people to Jesus the way that you are, and then you will inevitably start looking at those people with contempt. You'll look at them and be like, they're not doing enough, they're not praying enough, they're not leading enough people to Jesus, the small group is too small. It's not big enough. And there is a contempt that will come over you and cause you to start looking with despite upon other people. But when, when your salvation is rooted in God's solution, Jesus, that actually brings about a humility in your heart. You know what happens? You actually start accepting the same type of people that Jesus accepted. <laughs> Which that base is pretty big. Because the people that Jesus accepted were like prostitutes, uh, tax collectors, people that were social outcasts, people that everybody else just kind of chucked out of society and said, we don't want to have anything to do with them. Heretics. These are the people that Jesus came to and says, I'll hang out with them. I'll spend time with them. And so if you recognize that salvation, that the way that you're made right with God is through grace, then guess what? That will become evident in the way that you start treating other people. You'll start treating other people with grace. You'll start treating other people with a sense of love and care and compassion and not indignation or not contempt. That's the whole point. The second thing that boasting in the flesh really is motivated by is fear. He's going to go on to say this in verse 12. They force you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So what was going on, again, kind of in a little bit of the context, what you need to understand, first century... Um, the Romans didn't really have that great of a relationship with the Jews. They kind of endured them or put up with them. They didn't really like the Jews that much. Um, Jews, first century in a lot of ways, were very elitist. And there were elite groups of elite Jews, all right? So as a whole, Jews tended to be 
have this mentality of looking at pagan nations with a sense of contempt. But even within the Jewish nation, there were segments or tribes or groups of Jews, i.e. the uh, Pharisees, that looked at other Jews with contempt, all right? And so what you had was sort of this mentality. And as the church started, as the church began to grow, what you began to kind of run into was this constant cultural battle uh, of where are the boundary lines? Like, who does God really accept? That was a big question for a century. Who does God really accept? Does God accept all people? All races, all colors of skin, all walks of life, or does God just accept Jews of the lineage of Abraham? It's a big question in the first century. It's a big issue of the first century. So what you had was a break in the early church, or sort of a division that started happening. There was a group of people that said, like in the Galatians, there was a group of them that said, no, God only accepts Israel of God, and the way they become Israel of God is via circumcision, obedience to the law, adherence to the customs of Moses, and so on and so forth. But what you had also from Paul the Apostle, he would come on the scene and say, oh, that's not how it works. That's not how it's shaken down. What God does is God accepts everybody. And what we're doing is we're actually, God is actually getting rid of the old boundary markers that identify Jews, and God says those boundary markers no longer exist for the family of God. The family of God has now been redefined by former boundary markers, i.e. via uh, circumcision, those are, those are no longer relevant. Those are no longer in existence. God has removed those things, and God has expanded his family to embrace and to welcome Gentile, pagan people. That's what Paul said. And so when Paul went around, he's like, look, how do you, you know, people would be asking, how do we come to have life? Paul's like, look, the way they come to have life is you believe God's promises. Well, what's God's promise? God's promise was that he gave his son Jesus and that God has paid for your sin through his son Jesus. You trust in his son Jesus and you have life. That's the good news. And these people said, great, we believe in that. We trust in that. Paul said, great, you're part of the family of God. You have all the rights of sonship, all the rights of childhood in the family of God. And there are other people particularly from Jewish uh, background, they said, that's not enough. Paul's making the gospel way too easy for them. That's not okay. What Paul's doing is he's repudiating Judaism, and he's putting down Judaism, and Paul's creating a brand new religion, and Paul's a heretic, and these were all the accusations that were going on. So what happened to Paul was that Paul would be persecuted a lot. Paul, like Paul says in the second to last verse, he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord. Paul says, look, you want to talk about persecutions and trouble and difficulty. Paul's like, look, I, I endured a lot. I endured a lot at the hands of not only Romans, but also Jews. People who hated me, people who hated the, the message and the gospel that I preached. But Paul's like, look, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm sticking to the reality, sticking to the truth. And the truth is, is that God accepts all people on the basis of grace, free grace, because of what Jesus did on the cross, Period. Not Jesus plus circumcision. Not Jesus plus adhering to certain elements of the law. Jesus, period. That's what Paul's message was. But this group of people, they were like, if we preach that message, we'll get in trouble. People will persecute us. People will make fun of us. People will kick us out of their social clubs and their tribes and their groups and their traditions and their meetings. And they says, it'd be easier for us to just simply stick to ancient Jewish boundary markers for example, circumcision, instead of sort of upset 
the whole entire Roman world and start kind of preaching the message that Paul was preaching. So really what these guys were doing is they were motivated by fear. They said, we don't want to be attacked. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be injured. So we will just keep preaching circumcision. Paul says, problem is if you keep preaching circumcision, you're actually not preaching the gospel anymore. You're preaching the flesh. Even if it's motivated by fear, you're preaching the flesh. And by virtue of that, here's the deal. It's not good news anymore. Have you guys ever been to a church or service or heard the message taught from a pastor and you think, gosh, it just doesn't sound like good news. Believe Jesus, start reading your Bible every day, pray every other day, show up to prayer meetings, join the church, you know, have your baby dedicated, start paying money, you know, do all of these things and you're like, gosh, it almost sounds like life was a little bit easier not being a Christian because what you heard was not good news. What you heard was Jesus plus all of these things you must do. Instead, the proper way I think of understanding it is love Jesus, and as you love Jesus, as you're moved and motivated by the gospel, you want to be with Jesus. You want to hang with Jesus. See, the way that we oftentimes preach, read your Bible, do we encourage people to read the Bible because it's like that's the Christian law? It's like the Christian duty if you're a good Christian. All Christians read the Bible and keep a journal. That's just what Christians do. Really? And what, what verse was that again? There is none. That's my point. I mean, do good Christians who love Jesus read their Bible? Possibly keep a journal? Yes, they can. But what I'm trying to say is this, is that we don't do that because it's the law that we have to do that. People who love Jesus do that because they want to be with Jesus. They know that God reveals himself through his Bible. We want to read the Bible. It's a different type of motivation. Paul says these people are motivated by fear and they lead people into other depths of fear. The final one is this. Boasting in the flesh is motivated by hypocrisy. It goes on to say in verse 13, is even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they have desired to have you circumcised so that they might boast in your flesh. It's kind of an interesting irony that Paul's like, look, at the end of the day, these guys are boasting in the flesh, the actual actions of human hands doing stuff. And he says, the irony is, is that they're actually boasting in your flesh. I mean, it gets kind of graphic, and if you can let your mind go there, probably not the best idea, but in the back of your mind, if you thumb, somehow think, here they are in some back room taking the foreskins of these dudes they just freshly circumcised. They're like, check it out, 25 of them. I'm boasting in the flesh, 25 foreskins. Praise Jesus, all right? Paul's like, that's, that's what's happening. These guys are actually boasting in something that's disgusting. I think that's Paul's ironic point. It is disgusting. It's totally disgusting. It's repulsive to God. That's why Paul's going to say we need to boast not in our flesh but in the cross. But this is really led by hypocrisy because these guys are... These guys are boasting of the fact that they've got foreskins in their hand, which is a freaky thought. But at the same time, he's like, at the end of the day, they're not even keeping the law themselves. They're not even living perfectly by the law. They're not. They're hypocrites. They're judging everybody else because they're not circumcised, and yet you ask them, why should you be circumcised? And they would say, well, we want to live according to the law. Paul's like, you're not even living according to the law yourself. You might be looking at it and say, well, we're, we've been circumcised. But Paul's like, yeah, but you're greedy, you're arrogant, you're prideful, you look at everybody with contempt, you're the worst of the worst sinner. You're not even keeping the law. You might have four things that you point to and say, I do it. But Paul's like, what about, you know, the 600 and some odd other ones that you're failing to do? 
this is, look, this is why the Bible hammers down the gospel. It says we've got to recognize the gospel and what it offers to us. Look, years ago, several hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite authors, one of the most brilliant minds that America's ever produced, he wrote this little uh, treatise called The Nature of True Virtue. And in it, he basically compares two different types of virtue. He's going to call one virtue common virtue. He's going to call another one true virtue. Common virtue identifies as sort of the standard of life or morality that we live in this world. Uh, true virtue is what he's going to identify as what happens when your life is actually transformed and changed. And the distinction is this. But what he's going to point out in this whole treatise is that there is a difference between a heart that is restrained and a heart that's actually changed. You got to get this. If there's anything that you get today, get this. Because there's a big difference here. You might be somebody that looks at your life and you're like, I need to restrain certain elements in my life that are out of order. Maybe, maybe you're covetous and you're like, I've, I've, I've got to be different in that because my covetous actions are actually getting me in debt. I don't have enough money to pay off my debt, so I've got to change. So what he's going to try to point out is that there is a way by which in this world without God's immediate involvement in our lives where we can try to somehow manage and somehow try to control and reform our hearts. So we say things like this, like having, you know, these cravings, this covetousness in my heart is not good. It's not good for me. It's not good for my family. I keep getting into debt. So by simple actions of reform, you say, I'm going to change. And you can go out and you can do this in four, five, six different areas of your life because you know that there's certain areas in your life that are totally out of whack and you're like, I've got to change. So not only would it be, say, debt, and you realize I've got to change, I've got to reform. So you tell yourself, I'm going to change, and you reform, and you're different now. So you are now on a strict budget. You're controlling the way that you spend your money, and maybe even you're saving, and maybe even you're being able to give money away. I'll give you another example. You might even be someone that might look at certain areas in your life. Let's say, for example, even like, like lying. You're like, lying, I lie a lot. I shouldn't lie. It's not good because it keeps getting me in trouble. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reform. So what Jonathan Edwards is going to point out is that there's a distinction between just merely being reformed in your heart, changing the way that you do things, and actually having a changed heart. And the distinction is this, is that at the end of the day, why do you stop lying? Why do you stop spending? You're driven by fear. Because you know at the end of the day, lying will get you in trouble, Lying's not good. You can lose your job. Lying is something that you need to somehow bring into control. Or spending money the way that you do is not good. So you bring that by reform under control. But you're all motivated by fear. What you need to understand is you're not extinguishing the biggest vices in your life. You're not extinguishing fear. You're not extinguishing pride. Pride and the roots of fear are still at work. All you're doing is you're actually jury-rigging fear and pride to somehow control and bring about reform to your life. You understand that? You're not changed. You're using fear as a means to bring about reform. But those roots of fear that's dominated by sin, the roots of pride that's dominated by sin have never been extinguished. And if you continue on that path, it's a path of destruction. Jonathan Edwards is going to go on and say, what we really need is not just simply reform of heart. We need to change heart. 
Religion comes along and says, you need to be better, act better, look better, do better, and here's the five different ways in which you can somehow control these things to bring about reform in your life. You can change yourself by doing these things. And you can do all that without even giving glory or praise to God because at the end of the day, you can look and say, look what I did. I went through this course. I studied this book. I brought about change. I brought about reform. But yes, all you did and the way that you did it was by somehow jury rigging, manipulating, controlling fear to get you there. But do you understand that fear's still there? Pride's still there? You just jury-rigged your heart. You never changed. But the gospel comes along and says, God will change you, and the way he changes you so that rather than being controlled by money, God says, I'm gonna set you free from covetousness so that rather being, than being controlled by money, I will set it in such a relationship where now you're in control of money, and you can actually be so free to give it away to people. Not because you're jury rigging or you're controlling the fear to get yourself to live in some sort of moralistic standard, but because God has set you free. All that religion does is it gives you the empowerment to somehow jury rig your life to make yourself improved. And Paul's gonna say this is an act of the flesh. The reason why it's an act of the flesh because at the end of the day, all it really is is it's you yourself wanting to be your own God. You're still in control. You still take the credit. You still, tell, you still take the glory. You've never surrendered your life to God. You're, you're your own savior. And what the gospel is gonna say is, no, 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 you still have the roots of fear in your heart controlling you. You still have the roots of pride controlling you. You still need a savior because you've never been saved. All you've done is you've jury-rigged fear, other vices to somehow get to a specific end that's merely all surfacy. And what Paul's gonna say is this is what these guys have been doing and communicating to you. All they've been doing is selling you a surfacy religion that changes the way that you act, changes the morality of your life on a surface level. You are just simply reformed, but you're not fully changed. Paul's gonna say the evidence of that is that you guys are still bickering with each other, you're still arrogant, you're still prideful, you're looking at everybody with contempt. One of the best ways to identify, are you reformed or have you been truly changed, is how do you look at other people that are in the place where you once were? Do you look at them with contempt? Are you arrogant? Are you prideful? You're not changed. You've just reformed yourself. You've jury-rigged your life somehow to make yourself look better, but you're not changed. Paul's gonna say, I boast in the cross. Here's why. We'll finish this up very quickly. Here's what he's gonna say. Boasting in the cross involves, or is motivated by freedom. Verse 14, he says this. By far, or, I'm sorry, for me, far be it from me to boast in, in, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So here's what Paul's gonna say very clearly. He says, for me, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ because something's happened through the cross is that I have been set free. I've been crucified to this world. It's been crucified to me. Here's Paul's roundabout way of saying, I'm not controlled by the world anymore. I'm not controlled by it. It doesn't have control over me anymore. It doesn't have power over me anymore. The reason why it doesn't have power over me is because I've died. Here's the point. The best, fastest, surest way, hopefully I can try to say it to you guys, is this. Because all of us by nature, by the default mode of our heart, we sin. 
Sin at the end of the day is us wanting to be God. Us not wanting God, God's rule over our life. And one of the best ways to identify that is how do you think, how do you feel if you call God Lord? I mean, if the thought of actually bending your knee, getting on your knees before God and saying, God, I worship you, if that thought to you is just abhorrent, you're not a Christian. You don't know really what it means to be a Christian. If you do know what that means, in the thought of getting on your knees before God, even though it may be hard and difficult, but you get there at some point, you've got to understand the only reason why you're there is by grace. Paul's going to say is that by getting there, by grace, what's happened is that you've been free. All of us by nature, we resist and resent the rulership of God. Why? Because we want to be king. We want to be king. And what's happened is because of our repulsion against God, we pull away from God, we don't want God, we resist God, what God's going to say is that God's life, and if you pull away from God, you're not just pulling away from God, you're pulling away from the order of the way things are, and you are actually going to go and bring about some form of disintegration, literally disintegrating. It's, it's the idea of a word of if you had a sweater and there's just one string that you can pull and pull that one string until your entire fabric of your sweater is just falling apart. God's saying, that's what happens when you resist me, when you walk away from me. The author of life, it's as if your life is not just getting better. You're not finding more freedom. You're actually disintegrating. You're pulling away from the fabric of the way things are because I created all things. I'm a life-giving God. And God says the wages of pulling away from me is death. You'll die. You pull away from the order. And pulling away from the order only brings about chaos. But here's what God says. You stay on that track and you will be destroyed. You will be eternally lost. But God says, I've created a way created a means by which I myself would bring about a restoration of that by Jesus coming into this world. Jesus dies. Jesus takes upon himself your judgment and my judgment. He dies for us. So in other words, the Bible basically would look, look at it this way and say all of us, if we continue on the path and track that we've been, we will die. We will, because we are being separated, we have been sep- we've separated ourselves from a life-giving God. And that trajectory will lead to an eternal death. But God says, look, because you're on this path in which you will die, I've created a means in a way whereby my son will die for you in your place. So rather than you dying, he will die for you. And Paul says, in a very real way, you've died. But not physically, you've died by way of proxy. Jesus died in your place for you. And Paul says, therefore, you're free. You're free. So one of the reasons why we celebrate the cross or the gospel is because of the freedom that it brings. The second thing, boasting in the cross is also motivated by new creation. Verse 15 says this, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's beautiful. Paul's going to say, at the end of the day, what we need is we need to be new creation. A new person, a new life, a new relationship, because the old relationship that we've had with God is one of enmity, where we've resisted God. You know, we can talk about God all the time that we want, about God being a God of love, and God is a loving God, and the Bible actually identifies God as a loving God, but do you know that the predominant motif that's identified with God in the scripture is not love, but holy? Do you know that? 
The Bible in the book of Isaiah identifies God as holy. It actually describes it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the book of Revelation, it also identifies God as being holy, holy, holy. Uh, the way that the Hebrews would have written, you know, we've got all sorts of different um, mechanisms by which we can embolden words or bring some sort of identity to words. We, you know, make them bold. We italicize them. We underline them. We change the color of them if we're writing something down. But the way that the Hebrews would have uh, brought some sort of emphasis to a particular word is they would have said it three times. Throughout the Bible, the Bible's gonna identify God as holy. That's one of the chief characteristics of who God is. So here's the question. How do you and I come into or be made right with a holy God? And the answer to that is only by grace. We need to be made new. That's what the gospel offers to us. That's what Christ did on the cross was he created the means and the way whereby which we can be made new because on the cross Jesus not only died but he rose again the third day. That rising again brought some, this reality into the universe that death does not have the final word. That's glorious. I mean we live in a world in which basically death is the final word. I mean, that's the one thing that every single one of us are chasing constantly away from, running away from. We don't want death. So the reason why infomercials even exist at night is because you are on a trajectory, a path that leads to death. The evidence of that are is you've got flab around the midsection, you've got sagging eyes, everything looks bad about you, your breath stinks, everything is horrible because you are on a path called death. But we have the answer. You can somehow change and reverse all of those symptoms of death by buying our product. We know it. It's everywhere around us. We try to avoid it. It's one of the reasons why we love late night television. Late night television is always light. That's why Conan O'Brien's on very late at night. Because when you get home from work, you're tired. You're really just depressed because you had a long, hard day. You don't want to sit around and watch some sort of documentary about what happens after death. You want to hear about some silly stories on the news. That's it. You want to watch Conan O'Brien. Because at the end of the day, you just want to somehow forget about the trajectory of life that's always leading towards this ominous sense of the afterlife, of death. It's everywhere around us. And the only answer that Paul's going to say is that the reason why we boast in the cross because it brings about new life, new creation. The final thing is this, is it also brings about a new identity. That's why Paul's going to say in verse 16, all who walk by this rule, this peace and mercy be upon them. And he says, the Israel of God. This is an interesting phrase. Paul never uses it anywhere in the entire New Testament. Some have I think misappropriated this verse and has said the church has replaced Israel and somehow God's not going to make good on any of his promises to Israel. That's, I just don't think that's in, an, in any way a correct way of identifying this. I think the best way to understand this is that Paul recognizes that one of the chief arguments the people to whom he's writing to that they were using against Paul is they were saying that look, the way that you become part of the Israel of God is you get circumcised. If you're a Gentile, you need to keep the law of Moses. That's how you become part of the Israel of God. And Paul says no, 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 no. The true Israel of God is given by way of promise and trust in that promise. And Paul's gonna say, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what skin color you have. It doesn't matter what type of social economic background you come from. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free or male or female or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad of a heretic you once were. It doesn't matter how deep into sin or immorality you've been or how religious you've been, how much you've trusted in yourself or boasted in yourself. It doesn't matter. What matters is grace. 
God's answer to a fallen world, God's solution to a sinful, fallen, God-abandoning world is to say, I will come into this world by way of my son and I will restore that which is broken. God didn't cause sin, but God knows how to use sin for his own glory. God, at the end of the day, is working for your joy. Your joy, you need to understand, is not found in your independence from God. Your joy is found intrinsically linked to God, the God of life. But by nature, we run from that God. But by grace, God reveals himself as a God who's holy, but also as a God of incredible love. And he says, I've done everything, everything, to restore the brokenness of relationship between you and I. Come, receive. How does God do this? Paul answers this finally in verse 18. He says, for the grace of our Lord Jesus, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul finishes by saying, you want to know how God did all this? Grace. You didn't deserve it. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. But God paid the bill. God paid the price. That's a promise, guys, that, by the way, you can take to the bank. You can, you can literally stake your whole life on it because it's true. God done this for you. It's how much he loves you. You can stop wrestling, stop working, stop striving, stop attempting, stop trying to get God to affirm you, stop trying to get God to acknowledge you, stop trying to appease God. If you trust in his son Jesus, God's not angry. In fact, quite the opposite. He actually loves you. He truly, truly loves you. That's the relationship that Paul's trying to say that God's established through his son Jesus. How do we obtain that? Paul says by faith. We just trust God. Do you know that most of our sin is birthed out of distrust? We don't trust God. That's why we work hard. Because in our minds, we just think, it, just, it can't be that easy. Man, I've sinned. I've done so many bad things in my life, and I just can't accept the fact that God would just simply accept me for what his son did 2,000 years ago. So therefore, it's rooted in distrust. You don't trust God in what he's promised. That's not a sin to be managed. That's actually a sin to be repented of. Because it's that type of sin, that type of thinking that actually keeps you bound. At the end of the day, what God is working for through the cross is your freedom. Your freedom. And the way he did this was that Jesus comes in this world and he literally takes upon himself all that sinfulness can devise and all that religion, man-made religion can throw at you. As if Jesus to say, was to say, look, I will let sin have its full consequences on me, take me to its fullest extent, and I will allow religion to do to me what religion can do. And therefore, we see Jesus just before his crucifixion, literally at the hands of sinful men and literally at the hands of the religious people. What happens? Jesus gets brutally murdered and crucified. I think in a very clear way of saying, look, if any of us stay on a path in the relationship of sin that we have without ever repenting or in the relationship of man-made religion without ever repenting or turning from it or being freed from it, we'll be crushed. We will be destroyed. Because that's what man-made religion does and that's what sin does. That's the path. It's a path of destruction. The path of life comes from God graciously, lovingly giving to you his gift. That's it. 
We're going to respond right now, and we're going to worship. We'll sing to God. We'll partake of communion this morning. I'm going to have the guys coming up, and we'll lead some songs of worship. But as we sing, I want you guys just to really consider how great God is, how much he loves you. All right, I mean, if you're struggling with this, I mean, for some of you guys, I know I've talked to some of you, that God has just radically changed your life through this series. And that's been super encouraging to me. I mean, I've gotten so many emails encouraging emails from you guys and it's been stoked to see what God's been doing in opening some of your minds to the gospel and freeing many of your hearts because of the gospel and right now just kind of as we wrap things up what I want to do right now is I want to pray and uh, we're just going to just confess sin to God and I'm going to have these guys sing and play in just a moment here but I want to ask as I as I pray I want to maybe ask any of you here as, as we bow our heads and close our eyes in a second if there's any of you here right now that for some of you you're still wrestling with the gospel what does it mean how does it help you and you're still trying to find joy and peace in that I'm going to have you guys stand in a moment here I'm just going to have some of you some of those st- sitting around you kind of lay hands and you pray for you and, uh, and then we'll just sing some songs of worship. But I'm going to pray right now. So if that's you, in your heart, you're still wrestling with what the gospel means, what it implies in your life, how it changes you, how it transforms you, um, I want you to be thinking about maybe just standing up and just having a couple people around you pray for you. But let's pray right now, and then um, I'll have you guys stand respond. Jesus, thank you for the gospel, for the cross. That's not by our works. It's not by our acts of flesh. Or even by our default nature, God, God, our default nature leads to destruction because by nature we push away from you. We keep ourselves at arm's length. We feel ashamed, we feel unworthy, and therefore we run. And yet, God, the message of the gospel is, is, is not you running away from us. It's actually you running towards us like a father. God, you, you want to... Because you know that, Lord, as, as we're drawn to you in love, as we recognize you as the source of life and the source of love, God, that's, it's only in that place of knowing that we are fully accepted by you, by grace alone. It's only in that place that our hearts actually come to life. God, if our relationship in any way, shape, or form is dependent upon what we must do, if our identity in any way is forged or shaped by how well we perform, then God, we, we know we will always be people full of insecurity and we will never blossom, never grow, and never become fruitful. And, and that's not life, that's not living. You want us to live. Jesus said he's come to give us life. So God, we submit, surrender to you. If, if that's you, um, you know, anybody, just, just stand where you're at. You just feel like you're still kind of wrestling with the gospel. At any point, it doesn't matter what it is, wherever it is in your life, um, maybe you're just feeling not accepted by God, not loved by God, or just sin, or types of religion that you felt distant from God, and somehow you, you just wrestling with that and it's, it's okay I mean, that's what we're here for we're a church we're here to help one another walk along the gospel just continue to push forward in the gospel in the good news of Christ um, any, anybody else just, just stand right where you're at just, just still kind of wrestle with it it's good just stand up right where you're at I know it takes guys to kind of stand up, but I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, this, this is church, man. I mean, this is, I don't know where else, I don't know where else we're, we can be doing this. 
I mean, we got community groups, but if you're not plugged in the community group, it's just, you got no other place. We need each other. That's what the church is here for. Anybody else, you just kind of find yourself wrestling with the gospel, and, and you want to understand it. You want to get it. You want to grow in it. You really want it to change your life and grab a hold of you and transform you. Um, maybe you've been somebody throughout your whole life, you've just been reformed. That's all you are. You've just, you've just somehow uh, been able to control things in your life. You've been very good at it. You've been able to somehow um, restrain things in your life. That's it. And in your life, there's really nothing more than one of just restraint. You've restrained certain moral temptings and, and desires, and you feel really good about yourself. But in reality, you've never been truly changed. And today, you want to be changed. Again, that's that part of knowing the gospel. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. Cool. Um, some of you guys that are standing, if the people that are sitting around you, if you guys can just lay hands on these people right now. Just go ahead and lay hands on them. I'm going to pray and we'll sing, we'll worship. Let's pray for these guys.